The Good Nature Podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Nature, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. We know these are quite hard times and, you know, everyone needs to have a bit of a pick-me-up or so. We're hoping that this conversation will inspire you. So the first person we are excited to talk to is Caleb Afori Boteng. Caleb is the first formally trained herpetologist in Ghana and we're so incredibly excited to be able to talk to him today. And just to be clear, a herpetologist is somebody who studies reptiles and amphibians. Yes, he actually discovered a population of the Togo slippery frog after it had been considered extinct by scientists for 40 years. Yeah, I think there's something so amazing about, like there's always something super romantic about somebody kind of rediscovering a species or discovering a new species. Like I think it's something that can really capture people's imagination. Um, But you know, Caleb has actually gone quite a lot further, right? Like he discovered this population of this species and then now he's also created this NGO. So he founded an NGO called Herp Conservation Ghana, which focuses on the conservation of reptiles and amphibians in Ghana. But what's also very exciting about the work that Caleb does is that he is working with local communities. And actually, one of the things he does is using what he calls conservation evangelism. I'm not going to tell you too much about it right now because actually he's going to tell us all about it during the conversation that we're going to have. I think that Caleb is a really good example of somebody who's maybe like a biologist, but at the same time is doing a lot of work with communities and has a really broad understanding of what conservation can be, what makes it inspirational. Um, And also just to say, I watched him speak at the Conservation Optimism Summit last year and I just thought he was a wonderful speaker. So we are very, very lucky to be talking to him today. So here it comes. Now we're going to start our conversation with Caleb. Hi, Caleb. Hi, Caleb. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We're so excited to talk to you about all your conservation experience. So our first question is, what drove you to become a conservationist? Well, that's an interesting question. And by the way, thank you for having me. I had the rare privilege of being born and raised in a wildlife protected area. So um, I, I took it really for granted that I had such an early exposure to wildlife. My father was a uh, park warden and it was my, my normal life. So when I grew up and I went to the university, uh, it was like the easiest course to do because I could really understand and appreciate. But then as I grew up in society and came to the city, then I realized that things were really very different, that people didn't really care about our life and that while I was in big trouble and nobody could feel it. But I had just had that opportunity uh, to feel it very deeply within me. Oh, that's amazing. And actually, you're the first formally trained herpetologist in Ghana, aren't you? 
And you've also discovered while on an expedition a population of the Togo slippery frog, a species that had been considered extinct by scientists for 40 years. So that's quite an amazing achievement. I was wondering, what first got you interested in amphibians specifically? Well, this is a very good question. So most of my colleagues who are herpetologists, amphibian biologists, Normally, you know, they had uh, a frog for a pet. They, they really, 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 you know, like to spend time with frogs and all that, which I, I, I'm really jealous about that. But my experience was really different. What really drove me to work on amphibians was because of extinction. When I think of extinction, I, I think that you losing, like, a person, somebody that you, you love so much and uh, the person dies or something. You can never bring the person back. That's how I view extinction. And my personal journey growing up makes it even more real to me because I was very close to my father. He was my hero. I loved him dearly. And then when I was seven years, he, he passed on. He, he fell sick and, and I lost him. And I, I thought that he was going to come back as a child. I, 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 I couldn't imagine that he was gone for good. And I, I, I always hoped that he was going to show up one day. <laughs> and uh, it's over 20 years now, he never showed up. And that's the reality of extinction, that we take it for granted that we have amphibians and we have elephants. And, and then one day, they will not be there. And once it's gone, it's gone. There's really nothing you can do. And I realized that amphibians were going through a mass extinction crisis. And that really horrifies me to think of it that these animals are going and once they are gone, there's nothing that we can do about it. I couldn't just stand and, and watch it. So I decided to do something about it. There's nobody doing it in my country. And probably it would have taken another 20 years before we'd find somebody who would want to do it. And that's how my love relationship with um, amphibians began. Wow, that's such an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it. What makes you optimistic about the future of frogs? and of the Togo slippery frog more specifically? Well, let me say this first, that I'm very optimistic about wildlife conservation in general because we have been able to protect a frog, a frog species in Ghana. And I believe that if we can protect a frog in Ghana, then we can protect wildlife anywhere in the world. Frogs are not liked in any way <laughs> where I come from. Elephants, I've been struggling to get any attention from the public at all. Nobody thinks about, well, not many people think about wildlife and wildlife conservation, let alone to think about frog. So if we've been able to uh, protect habitats and rivers and streams and mountains, ecosystem um, because of a frog species, then I'm very optimistic that we can do much more. And it is with this optimism that I'm actually expanding. We have uh, um, established a new branch of our, our conservation in, in Liberia, for example, and in our strategy planning two years, we want to have another branch in Sierra Leone. Because we, we think that it's possible that we can do it, that community people are reasonable. They will not self-destruct. They will not do things that uh, hurt them in the long term. And if you can approach them with all sincerity and, and with a very clear purpose that you are able to work with them to realize conservation goals. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about not just uh, for conservation, but but wildlife and nature conservation in, in general. With respect to frog conservation, I have seen a lot of young people jumping to, to join us in, in protecting frogs. Whereas I was the 
first uh, formally trained person. I basically said that I was the first Ghanaian to decide to dedicate a career in amphibian conservation and research, which now it feels like a good thing. I can be proud of it and smile about it. But now there are so many people across uh, West Africa are doing the same thing. They find the little success that I've achieved uh, as, as something that inspires them. And, and they are not only inspired to protect for us, now they are NGOs protecting turtles. Young Ghanaians and Africans can get out of school, finish their BSc, and decide that I want to spend a career protecting a crocodile because somebody protected a frog and he's been successful. So I'm very optimistic. Another thing that you are well known for is for having implemented a novel church-based conservation education approach to engender and create local support. It's such an intriguing approach that I think is maybe not as well known in conservation. What exactly does it involve? And yeah, do you think you could just tell us a little bit more about it? It was born out of a strong desire to make a difference. It was born out of a, the, the knowledge that we couldn't save these critically endangered species without communities. And community involvement was so key to saving these species. And I needed to find a way to engage them. And conservation evangelism was the only way, at least at that moment. And when we say conservation evangelism, it's not just a church-based approach. It's using uh, people's uh, belief system. It could be traditional, it could be any form of religion at all, to inspire them so that they are willing to do something to save species. And when we do conservation evangelism, we are just basically reasoning out with the people, looking at what their own Quran or Bible or Hadith says about conservation. And it's a way of getting the attention of local people uh, as an initial starting point of engagement when it comes to conservation. Conservation promises long-term benefits mostly, which makes it very difficult to sell to, to these people. But when you use conservation evangelism, it's very synonymous to what most religion uh, teaches, which is basically trying to minimize some you know, pleasures of life and all that in, in anticipation of, with the hope that you would gain some long-term benefits when you do so. And that's basically what conservation also promises. It's a meeting point, really, between conservation and, and religion. And when we have done that, we've realized that we've been able to uh, get more support. And so in my case, the frog that we protect is a, is a delicacy, and the people have been eating it for several years. And they explain to you how delicious that is. And they also believe that it also has health benefits to them. And these are not things that you can use science to change. Um, one thing that I always tell the community people that Africa suffered from a deadly disease called Ebola, you know, and it just devastated the continent and, and the sub-region. And, and I tell them that, imagine that the cure to this Ebola virus was sitting right behind the Togo slippery frog. And you ate the very last Togo slippery frog instead of eating the species and destroying their, their habitat, we've been able to convince them not to do so and to protect the forest as a community-based protected area. And now what is happening is that we are helping them benefit from this kind of sacrifice. So we've had funding and we are putting in a, a canopy walkway 
in this forest. So by protecting the forest and the animals, they are also getting employment, they are getting you know, income and all that. That's fascinating. It's such an interesting concept. What would you say makes this approach so powerful? I think that division evangelism is Isabel, very powerful tool in, in many respects. Of course, uh, one is, is cheap and can easily be replicated because mostly uh, religious people gather at least on a weekly basis as part of the normal things that they do in society. And so when we do conservation evangelism, basically we seek uh, a time within this period that they gather for congregational worship to reason with them and present these ideas to them uh, to see whether they will embrace it or otherwise. The, the second uh, reason is that usually when people go for such meetings, is the atmosphere is that of, uh, of change. When people go to the mosque or to church, it's because they want to be better people. And so it's a very unique opportunity uh, to give them a reason to do so or to to show the way as to some of the changes that so so it's different if i met somebody at the bar and i talked to him about conservation the results may not be the same if i met that person in church because on that sunday or friday morning he's determined that he's he wants to live a better life and perhaps the third one that i want to also uh, put across is uh, that people's faith is very central to their attitudes and all that. And uh, people pay more attention to uh, things that are coming from either the Quran uh, or the Bible, for example, rather than something that uh, scientists are, are saying. So these are very few reasons why I think that conservation evangelism is such a powerful tool. I was wondering, so as you just say, you do a lot of work with local communities. What are the kind of key challenges that you've been facing? So I would say that the first challenge is just the challenge of dealing with humans. And there are also external challenges like from government. So maybe sometimes after years of work, the government still want to uh, mine the reserve and take out some bauxite or gold. And you spend nine years of your life trying to protect this forest and it's way above you. There's not much you can do. Like it's happening in one of Ghana's forests right now in the Atua forest that the government wants to mine for bauxite. And these are over 100 globally threatening species. We've worked here for years. We've even received award for helping communities protect this forest. And now the government is opening roads and wants to destroy this huge mountain forest. So it's unbelievable the things that we need to deal with that we keep trying. One side of conservation is this kind of failure, right? And there is that balance. And there are also these moments maybe of success right, where you feel like maybe you did something, you did something well, and do you think you could describe one of those moments for us as well? Yes, we've had some remarkable success. The key one is when I was finally able to work with my team to protect, then it was 847 acres of forest land legally. It happened so fast. The process took time trying to engage them, but once they were on board, it happened so fast I couldn't believe it. And now that forest has been expanded to an additional 2,500 acres have been added with 10,000 acres of sustainable use area. And this is unprecedented. It's never happened in my country before. And I can't really believe that it has happened. For me, this is very remarkable. 
And, and what I like about this is that we aim to protect critically endangered frog species. And now, because of the large area that we are protecting, we've seen wildlife populations bounce back. Our camera traps are having more encounters of large mammals. Uh, we're discovering new species. Some of them are not described in this reserve. And the last time I checked, there are 11 IUCN threatening species, including two that are critically endangered, that are protected by this reserve. So it's really very exciting. So you can look at these kind of achievements and then fight through the failures and challenges that you have on the way. I'm sure that I've failed too many times, but this kind of success has made me not even remember some of them. <laughs> but yeah, certainly there was lots of uh, challenges along the way. But it's so exciting and for me it's more of realizing uh, a childhood dream. It's like I've been able to recreate my childhood to some extent because the life that I had as a child was when people live with wildlife, wildlife protected area and we didn't harm these animals. They tried as much as possible not to harm us also. And I thought it was very beautiful. That definitely makes us feel very optimistic. And why do you think it's important to be optimistic in conservation more generally? I think that nothing really grows, I mean, grows as in um, flourishes in a, in, a, in a gloomy atmosphere. And so being optimistic helps. And I find that then in, in our personal lives as individuals that when we had opened our mouth and we've, we have said something positive, that our whole life begins uh, to take a positive turn. Whereas if we decided to open our mouth and confess negativity, that we begin to act exactly so. So personally, I, it doesn't matter the challenges or failures that we have in doing our conservation. I, I look at those little sources and I choose to declare um, sources or declare. And interestingly, that's exactly what we accomplish. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be optimistic. So if we decide to be optimistic, then we're going to realize the things that we are optimistic about. Whereas if we decide otherwise, uh, trust me, it doesn't matter how hard we work, we'll receive that otherwise results. I, I don't know if this makes sense to many people, but this is really from my practical experience. When I have come to their office and we are facing challenges, I could choose to join them and say, oh, these people, they are unbelievable, not again, they are cutting one more tree. Oh no, why did we do this? We are doomed. Then the atmosphere in the, for, in, the, in the office for that day, nothing really gets done because everybody is so depressed. But I can say, you know what? Never mind, this is just an isolated incident. Look, we are protecting 10,000 acres. This man is going to change. We're going to prove him wrong. We're going to put so much money in his pocket by protecting this this wildlife that he's going to regret what he did. Let's do this. And when, if I can do that, the atmosphere changes and we work better and we achieve better results. So it's, it really pays to be optimistic. Oh, this has been such a, an amazing and inspiring discussion so far. We've got one more question for you, uh, which is a question we ask all our guests here on the podcast. I know this might be hard, but if you had to pick just one species to make a case for, which would it be and why? Would it be the Togo slippery frog? Or would it be another species? <laughs> yes, I, I think that if I want to choose a species, I'll choose the Afia bragos bottle frog. The 
Afia Bragos puddle frog is a species that I discovered and described recently and just a few days it was listed as critically endangered. It's most likely only restricted to a small locality in eastern Ghana called the Atua Forest which the government is planning to mine uh, any moment from now. <laughs> I think that it deserves all the attention that it can get uh, in the whole world. <laughs> so, and, and, and more importantly because I named this frog after my mother and I don't want my mother's uh, name to be, uh, you know, be related to an extinct frog. I want this frog to be alive for a very long time because my, my mother has been very dear to me just as this frog is so dear to me. I want both of them to be around for a very long time and I think that the Afia Brago Puddles frog deserves some urgent attention. I think you've made a strong case. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really wonderful interview. It's been great to learn more about your work and just hear about your perspective on, on I mean, everything from frogs to communities to kind of like how to get people on your side and be patient. Start with what people really believe in and go from there. Such an amazing conversation with Caleb. Uh, it was really cool to speak with him and hear all about what he's been up to and in between hear a few of the kind of animals and, and things that he's got going on around his office. Yeah, I think one thing that I thought was particularly inspiring is how he pointed out that young people are now becoming frog, frog champions and how important it is to have that one person being kind of a role model. I think often we kind of forget that in conservation and we don't really realise that you need lots of different role models for different species to get people really into them. And hearing about how he's made that happen in Ghana for amphibians was really inspiring to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that I found really interesting during our conversation is just thinking about how can you reach people where they are, right? Like in what ways can you connect with what people care about in order to get them to uh, prioritize conservation or maybe like think about what responsibilities or like things that they would like to do in conservation. So in this case, maybe connecting through church-based activities, um, but basically really thinking about what belief systems people have um, and how and how we can connect through those ways as well as maybe doing kind of more like hard old-fashioned science. Yeah and I think that's something that we can actually replicate in other situations so here it's looking specifically at different religions but actually I think it's really interesting to look at other belief systems that people might have and how you can use these belief systems that might not necessarily be re religious but how you can use these to really connect them with conservation issues. And I think that's something that Caleb really highlighted in the conversation, which was quite interesting to me. Yeah, I think finding these points of connection, right? Because there are maybe going to be lots of people who care about the same things or who have shared values, but maybe present being able to present conservation issues in a new way that touches on these kind of shared communities or shared beliefs can be a really powerful thing. Uh, and finally, the importance of being the positive person in the office, uh, just like, you know, trying to stay positive and remembering that like your positivity can impact other people as well. And I think actually that's something that is really important in the current situation that we're in. So I'll definitely try to take a leaf out of Caleb's book on that one and try to stay positive and, you know, kind of spread that positivity around. Yeah, I think it can be really helpful in even allowing us to imagine what is possible, right? So 
yeah, wonderful conversation with Caleb. And so that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can let us know your thoughts on Twitter using the hashtag conservationoptimism or send us a voice note or an email at podcast at conservationoptimism.org. We'd love to hear from you. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget that you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you very much to the founder of this episode, the Tassel Eventus Foundation. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.